Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. Today is part two in our three-part series in the book of Titus, and today's teaching is entitled The Literary Trouble with Titus. Last week on the podcast, we discussed the thesis statement of Titus. It's found in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, which we'll read in a minute. But today's teaching will focus on what the author of Titus writes after the thesis statement. So we're going to read Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. And I would like to remind you that it begins with the thesis statement of Titus. We read, Remind your congregation to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show every courtesy to everyone. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of any works or righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is sure. I desire that you insist on these things so that those who have come to believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone. But avoid stupid controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. After a first and second admonition, have nothing more to do with anyone who causes divisions since you know that such a person is perverted and sinful, being self-condemned. So in this passage, the author of Titus writes to Titus, telling him about his congregation and asking him to get his congregation in order, to make sure that the congregation doesn't get caught up in stupid controversies, wastes of time, and silly discussions. Now, if a member of the church brings up a stupid controversy over and over again, well, then the author tells Titus, well, you should probably put up with that once, maybe twice, but after that, cast that person out. Now, it's here that if we read Titus chapter 3, verse 1 to 11, out of its context, it seems to make a lot of sense. But I'll tell you that when you read all of the book of Titus, you hear the word stupid controversies and you have to scratch your head. If you have not read Titus, let's do a quick review here to talk about what the author views as stupid controversies. We find the first stupid controversy in Titus chapter 1 verses 10 and 11 when the author writes, there are also many rebellious people, idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for sordid gain what it is not right to teach. So the author of Titus says, do not trust the Jews. They will come in with unholy teachings and they should be silenced in the churches. The second stupid controversy that the author of Titus cites is found in chapter 2. 
He writes, likewise, tell the older women to be reverent in behavior, not to be slanderers or slaves to drink. The women are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be self-controlled, chaste, good managers of the household, kind, being submissive to their husbands, so that the word of God may not be discredited. In other words, the author tells Titus that when women try to seek equality within the marriage, it causes disruptions for the church and that hurts the reputation of the church. Which brings us to the third stupid controversy that the author cites in his letter to Titus. It's found in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and we read these words. Tell slaves to be submissive to their masters and to give satisfaction in every respect. Slaves are not to answer back, not to pilfer, but to show complete and perfect fidelity so that in everything they may be an ornament to the doctrine of God our Savior. So in Titus chapter 3, verse 9, the author writes and urges Titus to avoid, quotes, stupid controversies, which raises three important questions. Is anti-Semitism a stupid controversy? Is sexism a stupid controversy? Is slavery a stupid controversy? The answer to all three of these questions, of course, is no. The equality of women is not a waste of time. Racism is something that we must deal with and talk about in the open. And slavery is one of the most abhorrent sins in the history of humanity. But the author of Titus talks about these three different issues as stupid controversies and then asks Titus to kick out the members of his congregation who would seek equality and justice in these three areas. Titus is a difficult book to read in 2019. Compounding the difficulty, though, is the fact that in the opening statement of this book, the author identifies himself as Paul the Apostle. And if that's true, you have Paul writing to Titus about how the Jews cannot be trusted. And anyone who suggests otherwise is just raising a stupid controversy. To which I want to reply to Paul, hey, you're a Jew. So why are you telling us that we can't trust the Jews? Who are we supposed to actually trust here? Making this book even more difficult is that thesis statement I referred to earlier found in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind your congregation to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show every courtesy to everyone. And when you read Titus from this perspective, you realize that this is an epistle or a letter sent with the intent to keep people who are in power, powerful, and to keep those who are oppressed in their downtrodden state. My brothers and sisters, what we must talk about when we talk about the book of Titus is that Titus is a problematic book in the Bible. And it's in the New Testament. So what do we do when we encounter a book of the Bible that's problematic. Personally, I like to consult the experts. 
And an expert I'd like to consult today is Dr. Margaret M. Mitchell, who is the dean of the University of Chicago School of Theology, which is a very prestigious school. And she, in a commentary in 2010 on Titus, wrote these words. Most scholars today regard 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus as pseudepigraphical. Now, last week we defined what pseudepigraphical actually meant, but it's a fancy way for Dr. Mitchell to say Paul probably didn't write Titus. Now, it's a pretty big claim to say that a book who claims to be written by someone wasn't actually written by that someone. And so Dr. Mitchell backs that claim up with three different things to prove that Titus was not written by Paul. She talks about the historical problems with Titus, the literary problems with Titus, and the theological problems with Titus. On last week's episode, we talked about the historical problems with Titus and the historical events that are listed in Titus and how it doesn't actually line up with the world and experience that Paul personally had. So today we're going to shift our focus to the literary problems with Titus. And as we do that, I would remind you that if I say what the literary problems are and you say, ah, that's not enough to convince me that Paul didn't write this, I would say that's fine. Just remember that it's these three problems together that lead scholars to believe that Paul did not write Titus. You cannot isolate one from the other two. So let's talk about the literary problems with Titus. Now, Paul, according to church tradition, wrote 13 books in the New Testament. Of those 13, there are seven that biblical scholars are in unanimous agreement that Paul actually wrote. Those seven are Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, and Philemon. There is much more of a mixed reaction among scholars as to whether or not Paul actually wrote Ephesians, Colossians, and 2 Thessalonians. And then from there, we go to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, known as the pastoral epistles, and there are very few scholars who believe that Paul actually wrote these three letters. One of the main reasons for that is because of the literature found in these three letters. If you looked at all of the words that compose 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, you would count 848 unique words. Of those 848 words, 306 of them, or 36%, do not show up anywhere else in the writings of Paul if you include even Ephesians, Colossians, and 2 Thessalonians. Now, obviously, as we grow and mature, we start to adopt new words, but we're talking about 36% of the words show up nowhere else in Paul's writings. To give you an idea of how significant this is and what the real implications of that are, we're going to turn to Dr. Bart Ehrman, who wrote a book called Forged, and in this book he writes these words. That's an inordinately high number, especially given the fact that about two-thirds of these 306 words are used by Christian authors living in the second century. That suggests that this author of Titus is using a vocabulary that was becoming more common after the days of Paul and that he too therefore lived after Paul. So when you look at the language and the words that are used, they line up much more with the Christian theology of the second century than when Paul was alive. 
Now, we don't know the exact dates that Paul lived, but our best guess is that he lived sometime between 5 and 65 CE, or as others know it, AD. Now, I just threw a lot of information at you, so I'd like to lay that information out in an audio timeline. So imagine an audio timeline beginning on the left side of your brain with the earliest date being 5 BCE. This is when scholars believe around the time that Jesus Christ was born. About 10 years later, Paul comes into the picture at 5 CE. And then 25 years after that, sometime around the year 30, Christ is crucified, buried, and then resurrected from the dead. Now, here is something that most Christians misunderstand about the Bible. For the next 20 years, between 30 and 50 CE, there is literary silence. We do not possess a piece of literature that was written in this 20-year window. Now, we have other writings that were written much later about what happened to Christians in that 20-year window between 30 and 50 CE, but we don't have anything that was written during that time period. Now, this all changed sometime between the years 50 and 55 CE, when Paul wrote his first letter. Now, there is debate in the scholarly community as to which letter was the first, but most scholars agree it was either Galatians or 1 Thessalonians. Then, over the next 10 to 15 years, Paul writes 1 Corinthians, Philippians, 2 Corinthians, Philemon, and then Romans before his death in 65 CE. According to church tradition, Paul was beheaded sometime around 65 CE for speaking out against the state of Rome. Now, between 60 and 70 CE, there is all kinds of death happening. And while this may not seem like a phenomenon to you or me, after all, every decade is filled with death, this was a major theological crisis for a young Christian church. The reason being is that most Christians believe that Jesus Christ was coming back in their lifetime. And when those Christians who believed that Jesus was going to return in their lifetime started to die, well, it forced Christian theologians to look at each other and say, maybe Jesus isn't coming back so soon. And the absence of Christ's return forced Christian theologians to rethink their faith to adapt to their current circumstance which has been going on in the Christian tradition since this time period. Then in 70 CE, there was a major event that every New Testament student should be aware of. That is when Rome was tired of the Jewish rebellions and marched on Jerusalem and leveled the city of Jerusalem and the temple that laid at the top of the city. It is in the aftermath of the temple's destruction that the Gospel of Mark is written sometime between the years of 70 to 80 CE. Then over the next 20 years, between 80 and 100 CE, you add Matthew and Luke and Acts and Colossians and Ephesians and 2 Thessalonians. And then after the year 100 CE, we see the Gospel of John, as well as Titus and 1 and 2 Timothy. Now I lay this timeline out for you because it's important for us to understand some things. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John describe the earliest events in the New Testament. And yet, those four books were some of the last to be written in the New Testament. So if you want to get a window into foundational Christian theology and understand what the first ideas were to come out of Christian thought and theology, 
then you should turn to the early writings of Paul because they were written well before Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And they were the first things that we have that were written about what it meant to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So to understand this foundational Christian theology, let's turn to the book of Galatians. And while we are turning there, I want to remind you of what we were studying in Titus. Galatians is attributed to Paul, just like most Christians would attribute Titus to Paul as well. However, according to Titus, the author asks Titus to avoid stupid controversies. And Titus should remind his congregation that the Jews are deceptive people, that wives must submit to their husbands, and slaves must obey their masters. Remember those three things as we turn to the book of Galatians, and I share about how this book was written. Now, Galatians was written to a church in Galatia, which is in modern-day central Turkey. Now, sometime between 30 and 50 CE, Paul had wandered through central Turkey and set up a church. And while he was there, he invited men and women, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, to all participate in this worship service together. Now, we don't know much about this worship service other than the fact that they probably and most likely shared communion together at the church of Galatia. After setting this church up, Paul then leaves, and then he begins to hear how there's problems back at the Galatian church. He hears about people pulling rank on one another, about how men are better than women, about how slaves are subhuman, and then the big controversy— the Jews, who had grown up with religion, were claiming that the Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to fully experience the presence of God. This infuriated Paul. So he sat down to write a letter that would eventually become the book of Galatians in our New Testament. Now in that book, he makes it very clear that you can experience God regardless of the skin on the end of your genitalia. But he says it much more eloquently than that. The thesis statement of Galatians is found in chapter 3, verse 28, when Paul writes, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Now compare and contrast the thesis statement of Galatians with the, quote, stupid controversies in Titus, where the author of Titus says that the Jews are deceptive, women should submit to their husbands, and slaves should obey. In other words, the message of Titus is the exact opposite of the message of Galatians. And if anyone ever tells you that the Bible is the inerrant, perfect word of God and there are no contradictions or fallacies found within the Scripture— then point to them the books of Titus and Galatians and say, these clearly contradict each other. They are the exact opposite of one another. And the only way to maintain the belief that the Bible is free of contradictions is to never read it. Because there's lots of contradictions, which we spend a lot of time talking about here at Paradox Church. Titus and Galatians contradict each other. And whenever you have a contradiction, you have to make sense of it. 
Because you have to choose which one you trust and which one is right and which one is wrong. Or if there's some mutual truth between them. So to help us make sense of this contradiction between Titus and Galatians, we need to appeal to the highest form of cinematic art. I'm speaking, of course, of the Star Wars saga. All the way back in 1977, George Lucas introduced us to Luke Skywalker, a farmer who would one day topple a massive empire. It's hard to imagine why this movie resonated with an American audience. <laughs> so after blowing up the Death Star in episode one or four, depending on how you're counting things, Luke then goes to Dagobah to train under Master Yoda in The Empire Strikes Back. At the end of that movie, Luke confronts Darth Vader with his lightsaber, but Darth Vader slices off his hand and then tells Luke that he is his father. Oh, shoot. I forgot to say spoiler alert. My bad. That's a really big reveal if you haven't seen the movies. I'm really sorry. The next movie then begins, Return of the Jedi, where Luke returns to confront Darth Vader, and he beats Darth Vader this time, and right when he's about to kill him, he realizes he has become what he hates, and so he throws away his lightsaber, and then his father, Darth Vader, kills the Emperor, which kind of defeats the whole theme of good people not killing other <laughs> bad guys. <laughs> Don't think about it too much. Star Wars is awesome. So Luke is glad to see that his father has converted to the light side for a short time before he passes away. And with that, the first major chapter or trilogy of the Star Wars saga ends. Now, I remember seeing these movies when I was about 10 years old. And when it was brought to an end, I remember thinking to myself, man, wouldn't it be great if we got to go on another adventure with Luke Skywalker? Like, this is the hero that I want to spend more time with. 16 years from the time that The Return of the Jedi ended, we got a brand new set, a brand new trilogy of movies that we just don't need to talk about. 32 years after the end of Return of the Jedi, though, they said they're bringing back the original gang, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Chewbacca, and Han Solo for Episode 7. The Force Awakens. I was so excited. Here we were going to go on another adventure with Luke Skywalker. So I went and saw the movie in 2015. I remember I saw it at a theater, a tiny little theater in Mammoth Lakes, California. And I settled in and I buckled up and I waited for Luke Skywalker to show up. He wasn't in the movie. Not until the very, 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 very end of the movie when Ray shows up on a remote island in the middle of water and returns Luke's lightsaber back to its rightful owner. Now, it was here that I thought to myself, all right, things are about to get great. We get to see Luke as a full-on Jedi. And then the screen went to black, and they started to roll the credits. So I had to wait two more years for episode eight, The Last Jedi, to be released in theaters. And I couldn't wait to see this movie because I knew we were going on another adventure with Luke Skywalker. So I remember seeing this movie in 2017 here in Redlands. 
And there's a side quest that opens the film, but the second part of the film is we return to that island with Ray and Master Luke, and he's holding the lightsaber. And all of a sudden, he takes that lightsaber and chucks it over his shoulder and walks away indifferently from Ray. Well, that's kind of strange. Ray then chases after him, and as she begins to talk to him, it becomes apparent that Luke Skywalker is very, very grumpy. At one point, Luke Skywalker says in the movie, I only know one truth. It's time for the Jedi to end. Now, I remember hearing this line in the movie theater and thinking to myself, really? That's the one truth you know? Not like never give up on love or gravity or every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Can't we go with something that's more valuable than it's time for the Jedi to end? A few minutes later in the movie, he says the legacy of the Jedi is failure. And then at one point he says to Rey, you think what? I'm going to walk out with a laser sword and face down the whole First Order? To which I wanted to respond, yeah, that's why I'm here and why I paid $15 to sit in this seat. Not for you to be grumpy on some lonely island. And as the film went on, I started to have a very different thought than I did as a 10-year-old boy. And the very different thought I had in my head was simply this. I wish they never found Luke Skywalker. In the original trilogy, Luke was the optimistic guy who believed you could do something in the face of terrible oppression and suffering. And yet here he is, 30 years later, embodying that terrible oppression and suffering. And as you look at the contrast between the original trilogy and episode eight, The Last Jedi, it's important for us to acknowledge that Luke Skywalker did not age gracefully over 30 plus years. Now, Luke Skywalker did the opposite of aging gracefully. I would say that Luke Skywalker aged rather prickly over 30 plus years and grew into this spiky cactus that nobody wanted to hug. Now, I tell you all of this because when you talk about the historical literary context of Paul writing these letters, there is a significant amount of Christians who believe that Paul wrote the letter to Titus simply because the letter to Titus says that Paul wrote it. But understand what you are saying when you are arguing for this viewpoint. Scholars are telling us that Titus was definitely written after 100 CE. So when Christians drag it back 50 years to sometime around 60 CE, what they are arguing for is the fact that the story of Paul took a rather dark and grumpy turn. Because if Paul actually wrote Titus, then Paul aged rather prickly in just 10 short years. And sometime around 50 to 55 CE, Paul writes, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And every time a Christian's like, no, 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 Paul definitely wrote Titus. What they are saying is that the story of Paul went something like this. He would say toward the end of his life, after trying this for a decade, I actually think sexism is the way of God. My brothers and sisters, what we have to understand is that if Paul actually wrote the epistle to Titus, then Paul 
gave up on racial equality. Paul gave up on women's progress. And Paul gave up on the humanity of slaves. In my opinion, these are much bigger problems than having the book of Titus say it's written by Paul when it actually wasn't written by Paul. And anytime a Christian says, well, no, it has to be written by Paul because it says it's written by Paul, they are arguing that Paul gave up. Historian Karen Armstrong points this out in her book, St. Paul, the Apostle We Love to Hate. Her words are this, in Paul's congregations, there seems to have been roughly as many male as female leaders, since in Christ, gender equality, as well as class and ethnic equity, was mandatory. These posthumous epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, tried to rein Paul in and make his radical teachings more acceptable to the Greco-Roman world. What's much more likely, according to Karen Armstrong, is that Titus was written 50 to 100 years after the life of Paul, when church leaders who had power were looking around at their congregations, and they started saying to themselves, you know, this book of Galatians is causing all kinds of problems because women think they're equal to their husbands. We need to control women, slaves, and establish our religious authority over the Jews in order to have peace and harmony within Christianity. And so someone 50 to 100 years later after the life of Paul sat down and wrote a letter undoing all of the foundational work and beauty of the book of Galatians. And the fact that Titus is so on the nose for each point that Paul makes in that thesis statement in Galatians 3.28 makes me believe that it was a direct assault on the very foundation of Christian theology. Now it's here that Christians hear this and they think that I'm campaigning to remove the book of Titus from the Bible. I will tell you that is not true because the inclusion of Titus in the Bible dares us to think critically about who Paul actually was. And while we've talked about historical problems in the book of Titus and this week we talked about literary problems and next week we're talking about theological problems. These are big ideas, but ultimately, if you read the book of Galatians and you read Titus, you say to yourself, these don't work. These are not the same thing. They're the opposite. And the opposite invites us to step into who we actually think Paul was and what Paul would teach us today. If Paul was on this podcast, I have no doubt in my mind he would preach the story of Galatians. He not only wrote it, but he lived it. This idea that there is no longer men or women, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, but we are one in Christ Jesus, is told throughout his life in the book of Acts. And once you see that's what drove him, you cannot unsee it. Which brings us to today. We have a fork in the road. Did Paul write Galatians or did Paul write Titus? Now it's possible that Paul wrote both. But if you believe that, then you have to believe that Paul gave up 
on humanity and the gospel. And when we look at church history and this idea that Galatians and Titus are opposed to one another, what we have seen throughout church history is that the church has repeatedly prioritized the values and teachings of Titus over the values and teachings of Galatians. This is one of the church's worst sins because the church, rather than tearing down the patriarchy, has used religion to reinforce the patriarchy much in the same way that the author of Titus intended the church to do. The church does not work toward racial harmony, but instead works against racial harmony and often reinforces racial divisions. When you look at American history, the overwhelming majority of churches supported slavery as God's ordained will. And what we have to understand is that one of the church's worst sins is that we gave Titus more authority than Galatians. We must change this. Christians must prioritize Galatians over Titus. We must give more volume and weight and authority to the book of Galatians than we do to the book of Titus. Because if we trust the message and foundational theology of Galatians, it has very practical, very real, and very valuable implications for us today. Because Galatians tells us that racism is anti-gospel and racial equality is the gospel. It's not an extra, it's not an aside, it's not one of the things that we do, it is the heart of what we do. And whenever we work toward racial equality, we are working for the gospel. Galatians tells us that sexism is anti-gospel and feminism is the gospel. And every follower of Jesus has a responsibility for the equality of all genders. Galatians tells us that slavery is anti-gospel and economic justice is the gospel. Whenever we work toward economic justice for all people, we are doing gospel work. So the question shifts from how can you best uphold the church to how are you working for the equality of all? And all of a sudden that becomes the mission of what we do. Here at Paradox Church, our mission is to see and embrace Jesus Christ in all. And this comes directly from Galatians 3.28. Because when you look at the whole of what Galatians means, Galatians implies and shows us and inspires us to trust that humanity is the gospel. May we be able to see the image of Christ in all human beings. And may we celebrate our differences and embrace our commonalities. And then understand that this is what it means to be Christian. My brothers and sisters, may you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all. Of us.